Good evening, everybody. This is Barbara with Canada Girl Speaks Podcast, and um, I'm so excited to be recording on tonight. I have another special guest on tonight. Um, excited about this this gentleman being on the podcast. Um, have some history with him. He used to be my former boss. And so, without further ado, I would like the listen audience to get to know Dr. G.M. Cox. Yay! Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Cox. I'll, and I'm going to probably be going back and forth saying chief because I know you're Dr. G.M. Cox, but I always, uh, you know, you're my, you're my, still my, my chief, you know, I get a lot right. of chiefs, you know, that, that, that title. So, right. um, uh, chief, um, tell the listening audience about who Dr. G.M. Cox is. Well, Barbara, thanks for having me, number one. And, um, it's just always nice to visit with you and, uh, get an opportunity to, talk about topics that are that are important to people but um as you know yeah i was the chief of police in course Canada for 15 years and i retired there in 2008 and uh went to be the chief in murphy texas which is between wiley and plano to give some people an idea where that is anyway i was there for seven years retired there uh in 2015 and became a full-time professor at Tarleton state university uh, I headed the, uh, the master's in public administration program and then developed an undergrad degree program for the, the Tarleton State University through the AM system, which is being delivered at the Relis campus, which is in College Station. So, uh, been kind of exciting last, uh, you know, 12 years or so. And then, of course, you know, we had a lot of, uh, interesting things going on. And of course, Canada, the 15 years I was there. Yeah. And prior to that, I was chief in La Mesa, Texas, uh, up to south of Lubbock before. And then I started my chief's career as a 28-year-old young whippersnapper uh, in a little place called Oak Ridge North, which is just across the highway, the Interstate 45, from the Woodlands to give everybody a little bit of that. And, uh, of course, I served six years in the Air Force, and that's pretty much my story. You got a, my PhD is in public and urban administration from University of Texas. Okay, Chief. So you want to say something about you know, your family and all that? I know you yeah. have a wife and all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, Kathy and I've been married. This will be our thirty-first year, and oh, of course, wow. uh, yeah, we got four kids. And by the way, uh, three of them are back living in Course Canada. Two of them never left. Frank, you may remember my son, he, uh, he went to the Air Force and he went to uh, Charleston Air Force Base in Charleston, South Carolina, lived there for 10 years, met the love of his life. He's got three kids. Well, he decided to move back and he lives in Course Canada now. So we've got... Okay. Yeah. So uh, my youngest, Katie, she's got two kids. Well, she just had her third. And uh, our two kids are going to school. But no, all of our, all of our grandkids that are still is in Course Canada are all going to Bowie Elementary, so it's kind of cool. So all the cousins get to see each other. And then, of course, I've got one, you know, Olivia, she works for the city, still does. Mm -hmm. Of course, her oldest is graduating high school, but her youngest is just turned sweet 16 yesterday. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, but still got very, I, I come to Course Canada all the time. We still have great connections there. Of course, my family's there, yeah. many good friends. 
So, Chief, I wanted to bring you on because, you know, uh, law enforcement has been a big topic of discussion in within this last, you know, couple of years and all that. And mm-hmm. I wanted to bring you on because you have over 40, over 43 years of law enforcement experience. And, um, you know, with and me as well, as far as what I do, um, you know, I've been doing that, you know, my, my particular job for over 30-something years. And so um, I wanted to have a conversation conversation with you because yes you are you know instructor plus you have the experience about um the what has what has changed in the future of law enforcement you know we think um i want to talk about when they when, when we hear the term defunding the police right. and so um you know i know uh, when you were the chief you know in in corsicana you were big on community policing and I do believe that it's still a, a big piece of the pie to get, you know, these communities, the relationships with police and the communities um, to, you know, be, you know, the, the, I guess the division to be mended. And so um, uh, tell the listen, audience, um, you know, what you see, uh, what's going on within, you know, as far as within, law, you know, the division between law enforcement communities. What do you see has changed over the, over, you know, I guess the, the years? You know, I, I, I once I, I don't know whether I had the conversation with you, but I've had the conversation with many people down in Corsicana and as well as wherever I go. And I teach a course for uh, Texas Women's University uh, through the Graduate Management Institute through San Diego State, which is kind of a consortium. And I teach an emerging issues course to a bunch of uh, midline, mid-management uh, type police officers from all kinds, whether it be police deputy sheriffs, whatever. And so my, my goal in the in teaching course is not only to kind of get them an appreciation for, for futures, both thinking and study, but also to discuss what are those emerging issues that we're seeing. And I've been teaching this course for them for about five years now. And even before that, I taught through San Diego State. But those, those topics that we're talking about now, I've been talking about them for probably 20 years. Uh, in terms of, and now they're just becoming crystal clear that we haven't had a major criminal justice reform since 1991-92 when uh, President Clinton implemented the community-oriented policing in in the cops office in Washington, D.C. And before that, the last major reform period we had was in 1971-72 as a byproduct of the Crime Control Act, Safe Street Crime Control Act, 1968, so which is part of the Johnson legacy and uh, the Great Society of the 60s. So, what what I see is a crystallization uh, of those concepts that were that have been talked about for a while. So it's almost like Back to the Future. Mm. Uh, did, did you have a specific, or you want me to get into specific? Well, yeah, I guess um, you know, you know, based on the, what you what you you just uh, mentioned, mm-hmm. I guess uh, where we where are we now uh, in society with law enforcement, and right. you know, you know where, where where are we now? Right. So I, I, I and you mentioned that to start this with the the uh, defunding police, uh, we've seen the rhetoric goes from, and I think it bounces between two real. Borders. One on one border is pol- reform policing, reform criminal justice, 
And on the other end, I would say on the other end of the spectrum, which would be the more radical approach, would be defunding police. So somewhere in between those two uh, polar opposites, and I don't think, I think there are because we need to decide and define what people mean by defunding. Yeah. Um, because not everybody has a clear, crystal clear idea of what that means. If, if people think that defunding means getting rid of the police, period, I think that's a bad idea. Um, I don't think it's going to catch fire anywhere. And I think you've seen some of the cities that have actually started down that road aren't experiencing an uptick in crime. That they, they're going to need to rethink that. The, the other end of it, though, criminal justice reform, and keep in mind, that's a bigger umbrella, right? So we need to look at CJ re- reform because policing is only part of the criminal justice system. So you've got the court system, you've got the correction system, probation and parole, which other people might call community corrections, and then we have police. So those, those subsystems within this criminal justice system have to be looked at as consequential to each other. I mean, they don't operate in a vacuum. I mean, the court system can only handle what the police system gives them. Mm-hmm. The, the prison system can only handle what the court system gives them. And now we gotta, we got to ask, are we giving them the right things, number one? Uh, are the people that deserve to be in prison in prison? Are the people who deserve to be punished for certain offenses? Are they being punished, but in a, in a place like where the word rehabilitation actually means something? Mm-hmm. And then in policing, now I divide policing into two concepts, and I'll, I'll try to clarify. There, policing actually is two things. One is policing, and other is law enforcement. So what cops do, what police officers do, what deputy sheriffs do, what cops do, about 85% of what police do is, is service-related. It has absolutely nothing with enforcing a law, as you know. Yeah. It's helping people with problems, right? Um, and then the other 15% about what cops do, what police officers do, what some that call LEOs, law enforcement officers, what they do is enforce the law. Enforce Yeah, so that's the smallest part of what a police officer does is enforcing a law. In fact, most laws are written with the idea of voluntary compliance. So enforcing a law is absolutely failure to get compliance from, a, from citizens on a law. Now, sometimes there are people that intend to commit a crime. They knew what they were doing when they did it, and they're going to need to pay the price for that. Now, the question is, what's the level of severity of that crime? What's the, what, how's the victim been uh, victimized? Has it been a minor victimization or major victimization? Obviously, the, clearly the most serious victimization is being murdered. I mean, but from the small, from that, if you want to take that, of course, mass murder is even worse than that. So take it down to the other end, and that might be, one could argue that probably the least serious offense in America might be speeding. Uh, and that's, you know, that's really a civil offense in most states, including Texas. It's not a criminal. But some might consider shoplifting to be a minor case, or depending on how much you shoplifted. So we need, we start looking at that. We've got a First off, I always tell my students and I tell other people, when we start talking about something, one of the first things I ask them is, what do you mean by that? Tell me, yeah. define what you're talking about, because I want to know, so I know that we're not talking about two different things, or we're maybe even talking about four different things. 
but at least I'm going to talk about what it is you want to talk about. So getting the definition down is very important. So, Chase, um, as, you know, things are evolving, things are changing. Right. And I, and I see even like, you know, now we have, you know, we have, of course, we have the baby boomers, we have the Gen mm-hmm. Xers. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Gen Y, the Gen Y generation, and right. so when you look at those generations, and then you look at them, and because te- the way we have technology, you know, technology, 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 mm-hmm. and so now, so then you have a, you have these, these group of young people that are not engaging with people, you know, because of technology, and so what kind of police officers are we? What, what are the police officers of the future? What because I'm oh. seeing now these young people coming in and they don't have any sense of, you know, maybe community policing or engaging, you know, with the public. And so that that worries me because I'm like, okay, so who are going to replace these? Of course, the baby boomers, a lot of them have already retired or get ready to retire. So what kind of law enforcement young people are going to be replacing them? How, how are yeah, we going to replace these, these you know, retired police officers uh, with, you know, some good police officers? Well, I mean, Barbara, you get the, head, the, the nail on the head. It's, it's a real problem. Uh, I've been kind of trying to tell uh, what I thought for Sammy to say in the Graduate Management Institute for two cycles. In the last cycle, they they wanted me to teach branding. And one of the questions is, is branding is so important to recruiting, right? So, and, and my particularly, I was, you know, my dissertation was on uh, the changes in, in preferences to become police officers by, by generation. Mm-hmm. So, my main thesis of my dissertation was that Gen Y and now Gen Z, uh, they just don't respond to the old military, paramilitary policing paradigm like the baby boomer and the Gen Xers did. So I see a fundamental change coming in how police see themselves because the Gen Yers are going to come in and do it for them. So, in a way, i got to tell you, I'm excited about what Gen Y brings to the table. Uh, they're the most socially aware yeah. uh, generation we have, but you've, you've, you've also highlighted one of their weaknesses is in that the interpersonal skills. So they don't know how to settle interpersonal issues as well as, say, baby boomers and Gen Xers because of the way they've been, like you said, they've been hooked up to technology all their lives, they they text people. I mean, I remember my daughter, and you know Katie, uh, she would text me while we were in the same house together. Yeah. And, I, and I would I would just say, really? Yeah. And uh, But that's exactly, that's their preferred mode of communication. I think we've got to, we're going to have to teach them up so that their interpersonal skills become uh, at least as good as the demands they're going to see. And I think you're, one of those is this whole de-escalation movement within policing and particularly, actually, everywhere. Yeah. So we're seeing everybody being expected to learn how to de-escalate, de-escalate, de-escalate. Yeah. And some of that I can, I absolutely buy, buy into. But some of de-escalation skills aren't going to work 
when there's when a person gets physical, and you know what I mean because you've yeah. you've been a fellow communicator for thirty plus years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just can't talk a person out of wanting to fight uh, or wanting a physical altercation. But the Gen Zers, uh, which is the newest generation, they started being born in two thousand one. And so now the oldest is 20 if they've had their birthday already, but most of them are still yeah. 19. They're even, if you want a really good, a good idea of their way they look at the world, well, number one, you've seen how they voted in the last presidential election. So they're very much a platform oriented. They're social justice warriors. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I'm all for it. Um, but they're, they don't see policing as the way they want to, pursue their their social justice. They see policing as more of an obstacle to it, so they don't see that as an occupation that they want to pursue. So recruiting them is going to be very difficult. Yeah. You know, 1%, 1% of, of the people who want to be cops will ever be a cop. Yeah. And that's probably a good thing, Barbara. You and I both know that. Yeah. But imagine a group of people that predominantly none of them want to be cops. So who's going to replace the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, the Gen Zers? Possibly, but not all of them want to be police officers either or law enforcement officers. No. The Gen Zs, they're going to hit the, the police market. See, they're 1920. They can't really be cops in Texas until you're 21. 21. And many of the average age is way higher than that. So you're three to four years away from looking at a Gen Zer. But now's the time to develop them if they've got a police explorer program. If they got a criminal justice program in their high schools, really need to start. And that's uh, yeah. And that's where you know these communities need to pay attention to that because you know we talk about like the gen the gen wires. You know I you know of course I work with some and um, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at they're wanting to change the dress code. They right. want they want they want to wear the, the dreadlocks. And right. so, but then our baby boomer administration. You know, I know they're cringing like, oh, my goodness. So now they're having to, you know, now we're going to have to adapt to, you know, because you want, you know, maybe some police officers that maybe can relate to the community. You know, mm-hmm. and so sometimes you have your community members, they can't relate to the, you know, if you have just a, you know, let's just say the baby woman looks type, you know, the, you know, the uniform and mm-hmm. clean cut. And so right. you, you more likely can relate to them if, you, if they look kind of like look like you. And so right. now you're saying some of these departments are relaxing in their dress code and their, you know, have, you know, their hair and, you know, beard, whatever. And so because you want, you want to de- develop that community police and you want them to be able to, you know, re- you know, go, go into the community and talk to, to the community, you know. Yeah, you have to, yeah, so, you got a legitimate worry about whether their appearance, however, turns people off. So, yeah. Uh, you got to find a happy medium in there. I think yeah. beards are a good example. You brought that up. I mean, uh, I bought beards into the Course Canopy back in the 90s, I think you remember. Yeah. And uh, we got no complaints, none at all. But we made them keep it clean. We made them yeah. keep it neat. And you know, some of them just look terrible even with a neat beard. <laughs> you know, but you got you to look past that. But nobody ever got offended by it. But I know well, even, even like... Even like tattoos. I mean, now you right. know some some people, some police officers now. They, I mean, as long as they're they're in good taste, but now they're let they're right. you know they're they're relaxing that that part of, of tattoos. And, and so is this you know as far as you know 
I'm a Gen Zer, so it's just hard to. I know I have to adapt to, you know, what's, you know, the changes, the culture, mm-hmm. you know, right. that that they're coming in, and so. Um, how can we? How can we, as a, as a, I guess the law enforcement community, how can we, de- we, we build that trust? How mm-hmm. can the officers of today build that trust with the community? Because you know we have all, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. We mm-hmm. have, you know, the Antifa and all that stuff mm-hmm. like that. So how can we? How can the law enforcement community build trust? You know, in this mm-hmm. same time with the community. Right. I think it's a great like, question. Uh, number one, you can't circle the wagons. Uh, I mean, criminal justice, particularly law enforcement, has been really bad about circling the wagons when things like police reform and things like that come up, uh, when trust, legitimacy uh, come out. You know, Tom Tyler wrote a great book, Trust in the Law, and back in 1996, and it's the foundation now of what you hear when we start talking about legitimacy of policing, uh, legitimacy of government, for that matter. Uh, and so we're starting to see, you got to address it, number one, you can't hide, you can't circle the wagons. I try to tell, I remember, if you remember, uh, a couple of years ago, we had a bunch of police officers shot in Seattle, uh, that, you know, this was back in 2014 or 13. Uh, they were just sitting in a, I hate to say, it's donut shop, and they basically were executed. And everybody, saw, all the cops that were working with me, is said, we're not going out in public to guess. It's the absolute worst idea you can do. This is not the time to disengage the public. It's the time to engage them. Mm-hmm. So everybody I get to talk to, if I have any influence at all, they ask me a question like you just did. I say engage. Go out there and, and put yourself in an uncomfortable place. <laughs> You may not feel really good about going out there or even think it's your job to do it, but you got to do it. You're going to have to go out and visit people uh, at the level and at the place they want to visit. And you're going to have to do this. And you have to really look inside yourself. Are you doing the right things? Um, are you, are you, are your cops approachable? Do they look like they're approachable? Or they look like they're mad all the time. Yeah. Uh, are their uniforms, are they wearing blouse boots and combat-looking stuff, or do we need to soften the edges a bit that, yeah. so that people feel comfortable talking to them? Um, and some of this we've self-inflicted, truly. Uh, police police have gotten, over time, our uniforms have become very militaristic-looking. Yeah. I think we need to get back to something that's less so, more And that's, that's the part, I think that's the part that... Um, when I, I look at when they talk about def, not really defunding the police, but just mm-hmm. you know not you know as far as taking the the funds that maybe those the police that police agency receives and doing something different, like maybe putting more right. into community policing versus right. buying all this military uh, gear that when you have other agencies, you know maybe already have a SWAT. Why would you put right. more money into that when you right. really could be? using that money to maybe do something to help, you know, to engage with the community. And I think sometimes, right. you know, like when you explain defunding the police, that's, to me that's what that means is that you're just taking their money, their budget, looking at mm-hmm. their budget and seeing exactly what they're spending that money on. If it's a bunch, for a bunch of military stuff or a bunch of, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, no. You know, and so that's the conversation that the, the public needs to know that, you know, like I said, when you explain defunding the police, it's not, getting, you know, like you said, it's, 
So I'm not trying to get away with get rid of the police departments, but then some are just saying, "Hey, let's just look at the budgets and just see exactly how they're spending their money." You well, know? I don't disagree. I I think uh, yeah, that's the biggest problem in it because there's one group of people that defunding means exactly what they say it means, yeah. and they don't and they don't want to take prisoners. You know, it's yeah. if you disagree with me, you're absolutely wrong. Yeah, uh, you know, it's identity politics. You're all kinds of things that you can label it. Uh, then there's people like what you just said that defunding police means let's evaluate what we're spending our money on. Yeah. Can we be more efficient? Can we be more effective? Can we take some of that money and redirect, say, to a more of a, a social services type approach? There are a couple of those, by the way. If you want to look at some examples, uh, check out Eugene, Oregon. They have one that's called the Cahoots Program. So they have a 24-7 365 unit, mental health type unit, that yeah. makes a lot of the calls that police officers have to make, particularly here yeah. in Texas. Uh, but that's expensive stuff. Yeah. So how did they do it? They reduced Eugene, Oregon Police Department's budget, took a little bit of money, put it over there, but over time that budget, both budgets have increased, by the way. So keep in mind that this, once you, you know, once you create something, it rarely goes away in public service. Uh, okay, so... Um, in many cases, it goes up, but I think we I think we can do some things uh, in making. Uh, it's every chief's responsibility to make sure they're spending their money efficiently yeah. and effectively. Now the and question so, is, as you know, we have to have redundancy in policing, so you can't just have one system. You got to have uh, two and a half systems because if that system fails, as you remember back in 1999. When we were going about to go through, you know, Y2K, everybody's worried our computers are going to stop. Yeah. And yeah. we're, we're going to be back in the Stone Age in the blink of an eye. So don't you think that also, um, you know, we say, you know, across the board, across the state, that your police departments need to look like your community? You know, because now, you know, you have a lot of communities that are very diverse. And so how important it is for a, for a police department to try to go out and recruit, you know, because I, I, I believe in growing your own, growing your own, you know, uh, you know, teachers, you know, police officers. And so how important it is for police departments to make sure that, you know, and, and I'm also saying maybe your fire department, making sure yeah. that those, those entities look like your community because, you know, that is, to me, that is the best way to be able to be relatable because if, if, if these, these, these police departments, these fire departments, if they don't look like your community, you can't relate to them. You just can't, you know. So how important is that? Oh, it's hugely important, but it's also, it, it, it's as difficult as it is important. As you may remember back at, when I was the chief in Corsica, Canada, one of the biggest things, uh, when I got there in 93, we didn't have an African-American on the police department. Uh, I think we only had three or four Hispanics. Uh, now, understand that some of the best cops I've ever had were, were officers of color, but I would also tell you that they were some of the most victimized people I had working Yeah. I mean, people would complain on them for stuff that they would not think of complaining about on anybody else. I, I had people call me and tell me that uh, African-American officer, black officer was an uncle Tom. I had, when I was in La Mesa, uh, I had mostly Hispanic cops. 
but every one of them were sellouts because they were working for the, the man. And why, why didn't they respect uh, us other Hispanic, other, other brother and sister Hispanic? So I get it, I, but it's yeah. hard. You know how hard I work to get African-Americans to yeah. come to Corsicana. Uh, and it's, it's darn tough. If you go to uh, some cities like uh, Atlanta, uh, Detroit, uh, where you have a very large population of African-Americans, uh, they still can't get anybody to, to hire on. And the standards are not, you don't have to lower your standards. You have to have people come in the door. You have to go out and work them. But, you know, there's just some people that do not want to be cops. And if yeah. they don't want to be cops, you can't recruit them. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I think every every public agency needs to reflect the, the community. When and if you can, keep in mind, now go back, let's go back some time in history. Go back to the 1890s and early 1900s. Uh, New York City, the only people who would even take a police job were the Irish and the Italians. Mm. That's why you have to this day in New York City and other big metropolitan cities that you have such uh, what we call legacy hiring. Well, you mm. still got a lot of Irish folks. You got a lot of Italians that are cops and firefighters because that's who they that's who they would because it wasn't considered a good job. You understand? Yeah. So they took the job that nobody else wanted and made something of it. Uh, now, government jobs. Well. You may remember back in the 80s and the 90s, government jobs were like the number one kind of job. I mean, yeah. they had good benefits. They didn't pay real good, but they had great benefits. That's no longer the case. We've, we've relinquished our superiority as the employer of choice across the government spectrum uh, because the private sector is, in many cases, pays better and has better benefits. Yeah. Well, I'm ha I have hope that um, we're going to, you know, you know, being a police officer, being a firefighter, you know, mm -hmm. you know, if we as a as the older generation, if we work on our young people, you yeah. know, and let them understand that, you know, these, these are not bad jobs, and just yeah. change the culture, um, yeah. you know, because um, and that um, it's okay to be a police officer, it's okay to be a firefighter, you know, and so it's, we just have a lot of work to do, you know, and right. so that's why it's so important to have some form of community policing, to go into the schools, you know, to start having, you know, having open discussions with the communities, with the young people. And so um, I know we can get them, you know, and so that's why, you know, we just, we have to, you know, we have to start working now because like you said, we do have a Gen Zers coming, you know, and so we got to be able to, to meet, meet them where they are, you know, meet, meet them at least halfway, you know. And oh, I agree. So, um, um, and that's, that's it, we have to start, you know. And so, Chief, um, uh, you you teaching, you know, you've been teaching and all that. So does it look promising? Does it look promising? You know, when, when you see some of the students, you know, and I know the education is a big thing for a lot of them. Does it seem promising to you? Well, uh, keep in mind that I teach most of the grad students, and almost all of them are in the criminal justice system someplace. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I taught there at, at the Barrett College, we, we, the criminal justice system was the large, the criminal justice degree program at, at the Barrett was one of the most popular. Um, the, the feedback I get from other professors that teach in the undergrad field is that 
it's still a very popular, it's usually the second or third largest program on a campus. But keep in mind, a lot of students don't consider a CJ degree to be a degree towards pursuing a career in criminal justice. They look at it as another level arts degree like history or geography. So they, it's just to them a degree. And I've actually talked about how we need to create more of a linkage, not, not an absolute linkage, but a linkage to the criminal justice degree or a degree that would funnel young folks into public service. Now, whether that public service would be working for, you know, planning and zoning, public work. I just want people to go to work in government. Uh, or at least if they want to go to work in government, give them the skill sets to do it. Placing, uh, I, I would tell you what, I would take a, an English major anytime at the top uh, as compared to a CJ major. My undergrad was criminal justice, but I also see the value of having someone that can actually write a coherent sentence, being a police officer, as you know. Teaching them how to write sometimes is more difficult. But yeah, you got to engage them. You got to, I mean, we've got, here's what I tell when I talk branding to the chiefs. This was a program called Strictly to Chiefs. I said, you got to think of three things. Anytime you sell your brand, because Gen Y and Gen Z want to hear these three things. In any combination and in any innuendo first. They want to see and hear make a difference. Yeah. So if you sell your product as making a difference rather than enforcing the law, you've changed the paradigm. You're meeting them where they want to be met. You're not forcing them to change what they want out of a career to fit your model. You're changing your model to fit what they want out of a career. This is just what everybody does. That's what Nike does. That's what Adidas does when they sell a brand. The second thing, you want to serve the public. By the way, Gen Y and Gen Z have some of the highest public service motivation scores on the planet. So they're hardwired to want to serve people. They're hardwired to want to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. So if you you got to sell those three things. The, the make a difference serve the public and then you want to you want to you want to get them really involved in really making a difference in terms of the world be like i told one chief sell your department is become the change yeah be the difference if you don't like law enforcement be part of the change of it come into the organization and change it Make it what it is that you think it's supposed to be or should be so that you're serving the people. Make it different. Serve the people. But those baby boomers and those Gen Xers, they got to be able to release the power. They got to be, oh, be open, be open-minded with that. Those, those, uh, Gen Yers, you got to be able to, they got to be able to let them, you know, be able to listen to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's, that's, that's been sometimes the hard part about that is, is that they don't want to listen to them, you know, and so um, they just have to, you know, be open-minded about it, you know, just open-minded. Most of the chiefs I dealt with that I taught this course with were pretty much all of your mainstream chiefs. When I say that, they're pretty much, there's not many of us left in the baby boomers out there 
they're retiring at a, at yeah. a good clip. So, yeah. but most of your keys today are going to be your Gen Xers and older Gen Yers. I've met a couple. I always use them as an example, by the way. Uh, in my class, I say, okay, well, you, who are my Gen Y experts in here? They okay. raise their hand. I said, I want to use you as my sounding board. When I make a point, tell me if I'm right or wrong. And I do, I make that point. Of course, Gen X is shaking their head. I look at my Gen Y keys. I said, am I right or wrong? No, you're right, Keith. So you're right. They have to be able to fundamentally change their worldview yeah. and how they see not only themselves, how they see their departments, but they got to see how do other people coming into the organization see it. And then you got also got to be responsive to the public. How is yeah. it they see it? And I feel it, as you know, back in the early 90s, I said, you know, don't go for the fake. There's going to be a lot of people out there, in, uh, the, the louder people, not numbers, louder. They're going to be trying to sell you on one thing, and the, the total beneficiaries of that would be crooks, as you know. Yeah. So don't go for the fake. Uh, legitimate people will talk to you legitimately. They will talk to you reasonably. When people make demands that only have one solution and it's theirs, they are not representing the mainstream of your community, so I can assure you that. Uh, all these cops, I get caught calling me, GM, I, I don't know what to do. I am just discouraged. I said, let me tell you something. The silent majority is going to speak. And when they speak, when they get tired of the rhetoric around this defunding stuff, you're going to hear... The majority speak, and they did speak, by the way, and they have been speaking. Houston, Texas increased their police budget. Austin, Texas has gone through a defunding process, and now their politicians are in trouble. If you if you hit your your wagon to that whole defunding movement that that truly sees it as take money and go and trash your police fire, they are going to pay politically for that decision. Uh, Minneapolis, I saw an article today in the Wall Street Journal about this very thing. They've had over 100 cops live in Minneapolis since the riots. And they can't get anybody to come there. Who would want to? So they're going to have to figure their way out through this. And cops are people. They're human beings. And they want to be appreciated. They don't want to be, you know, flipped off and spit on and thrown defecation and urine on them. You know, and and, you sh- and nobody wants to be tolerant of a person who does that to a cop, right? Yeah. But so I think we're going to have to, when I say revise and reform, we need to reform in a way that the police officers also have a voice in that reform. Yeah. When you cut them out of that conversation, bad things happen. Yes. Well, Chief, I have really enjoyed um, this conversation. You have given... Same here. Sorry. Uh, listen to this podcast that they, you know, begin to listen to this and make sure I have a conversation because, um, you know, the world is evolving, you know, and to, and we want the, we want our communities to be involved in this process. You know, we have some of, the, some of our major cities, you know, in Texas are looking for police chiefs, you know, a lot of right. are retiring now, you know, and right. um, we look into like, okay, who's going to be the next leaders in those those particular organizations. So, Chief, I always give my uh, my guests an opportunity to give a shout-out to anybody they would like to give a shout-out to. So go ahead and give you a shout-out. Oh, I'll shout-out to uh, my kids that live in, in Corsicana, Olivia, 
Frank and Katie and then all my grandkids. I got too many to name. Of course, I always want to you know, shout out to Robert Johnson. He's doing a great job there as a chief, a uh, good friend of mine. Um, and then, of course, Sheriff Elmer's doing a good job. I, like I said, I tried to be connected, keep connected down there. And this, but, uh, I, I, I would say all, the, all of them were my officers when they were baby cops. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Robert was uh, with Course Canada before, yeah. before. When I got there, he had already left and gotten the Methodist. Uh-huh. And, and I came back. Yeah, and I worked with Elmer over at the sheriff's park when he was a baby deputy, so. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. And tell everybody there that I really miss the course Canada. I still consider my hometown and come home all the time. But, yeah. You know, I lived there for over 20 years. It was yeah, I know. A long time. Well, long thank time. you. Thanks so much for just uh, accepting the invitation to be on Canada Girl Speaks Podcast. And you and your wife have a blessed, a blessed uh, Thanksgiving and holiday. And, um, you know, just stay safe. You know, I still, you know, you know, make sure, you know, you social distance and all that, all that, you know, stuff that we have to be doing now because of this right. COVID crisis. So, um, I just want to be on Canada Speaks Podcast and have a good evening.